Women Leading in Cannabis. I'm your host, Kira Reed. Thank you for joining us. Our guest today is Kimberly Cargyle, founder of Therapeutic Alternative. Welcome, Kimberly. Great to be here. Kimberly is a mother, an advocate for natural medicine, and an owner of eight licensed cannabis businesses. Kimberly has been dedicated to advancing the medical cannabis industry in California for over a decade through advocacy and education. Kimberly has studied cellular and molecular biology as a pre-med student. In 2005, she changed her major to liberal studies with a minor in psychology and a focus on social justice and decided to do her part in educating the community and the government to promote natural medicines, including cannabis. She graduated from Humboldt State University in 2006 as a presidential scholar on the dean's list. In 2009, Kimberly started working as a business consultant for the medical cannabis industry. She is the CEO of a therapeutic alternative, um, a California state licensed storefront cannabis dispensary in Sacramento. In the last few years, Kimberly has become a mentor to many of her employees, helping them work up to ownership positions themselves through her incubator program at A Therapeutic Alternative. She is currently partnered with previous employees as owners in seven licensed storefront cannabis dispensaries, two cannabis cultivation sites, and a cannabis manufacturing company. Kimberly, you are one of the most prolific and active women I have met in this industry, and I am so thrilled to get to talk with you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So every time I connect with you, I learn more about your background, and I have to admit that I had no idea that you have accomplished so much in such a short period of time. And you've obviously had so many choices in what you can do with your life and career. Can you take us on a deep dive into how you decided to enter the cannabis industry? Yeah, so I was going to college at Humboldt State University. I was a pre-med major studying cellular and molecular biology. I love science. I'm a total science nerd. And I was learning more about holistic medicine, which at the time, 20 years ago, was much more repressed in this country than it currently is. You know, there were not yoga studios on every corner. There were not, cannabis was not out in the open. Insurance didn't cover chiropractic care or acupuncture as it does today. So prior to this time, I was studying the history of natural medicine and I found that it was very repressed and the roots of natural medicine were very closely intertwined with women in medicine. And so I found it all very fascinating. I decided that I wanted to become an advocate for natural medicine, um, including cannabis. 
I changed my major so that I could study different groups of people who have been repressed in this country and how they've risen above it and how they're unraveling that systematic oppression. Really, I think what incorporated me into the cannabis industry was the fact that I was a cultivator. And so as a cultivator in 2002, I entered the industry. I was 22 years old at that time and uh, bought my first house and started cultivating and bringing my cannabis down to Sacramento to sell it to the uh, collectives, which were, there was only a few at that time. Uh, they were very hard to find. Um, I actually found them on the normal website that used to be the only listing for cannabis dispensaries was the California normal website way back then. But what really made me decide that I was in it for good was when I had an opportunity in 2007 to interview medical cannabis patients at a dispensary for a documentary. It was actually a documentary that was being made so that if that dispensary was raided by the federal government, we would have actual proof that that dispensary was needed and that legitimate patients were using it. And at that time, I wasn't even totally sold. I wasn't all in, right? <laughs> but I spent a week one-on-one -on -one with patients from different backgrounds, different illnesses, different disorders. And I found that medical cannabis really was helping them and dispensaries, safe access was 100% needed in the city of Sacramento, in California, and throughout the nation and throughout the world. And so at that point, I dedicated my life to becoming an advocate for medical cannabis and started working night and day, seven days a week to help change some of the laws and provide patient protections. And you have been very acknowledged for all of the work that you've been doing. I was going through your bio and there is just one award after another, one acknowledgement after another, whether it's in your local community or whether it's in California or the cannabis industry at large. This year, you're going to receive the International Association of Top Professionals Award for Women in Cannabis, which it's a non-cannabis award. Uh, organization is going to be awarding that to you. So you're also crossing boundaries, which is just, it's incredible. And last year you received the award for Businesswoman of the Year from Lady Jane Society. If for one of the things that I think is really the most of all the incredible work you do, this to me, because of course of women empowered in cannabis, really, it just, it touches me so deeply. You have become such an incredible supporter of the women in your company. You created an incubator at a therapeutic alternative to help women that were working for you obtain their own licenses, which is just incredible because you're basically acting as an elevator for other women to become business owners as well. And so I just wanted to find out from you, how did you start doing that? What was the impetus for that? And where are you now? I said in your bio, you've got seven different licenses that you're a part of now with these women. Can you walk us through that a little bit? Yeah. So I have started many dispensaries and many have been shut down, raided, <laughs> like all kinds of stuff. So along the way, a lot of people were with me when we went out and we started dispensaries. We protested. We, um, you know, were part of protesting for federal raids. Like a lot of people were with me on that journey. 
And so when I was appointed as the CEO of a therapeutic alternative in 2012 and reopened it in 2013, um, I noticed that as I started to become successful, I really wanted my friends and the people that have been fighting this fight along with me, even though they may not have been the face of the fight or um, out there public speaking, because that wasn't something that they felt comfortable doing. They were still there providing medicine to patients with me for the last decade. And so I decided that instead of, you know, expanding as many of the larger companies in our industry have done under one name, one set of ownership, and really consolidating the wealth, I decided to really try to spread the wealth by um, partnering with my employees, friends, family, people who have been in this industry to help them learn all of the parts of running a dispensary and or running a business. And then they became the CEO. They became the shareholders and partners with me. And this model of business is called a heart-centered model of business. And we not only operate a therapeutic alternative that way, but the expansion of our family of stores and cultivation sites and manufacturing company, Camilla, who incorporates small farmers and small manufacturers who have been displaced by uh, regulations. What we're trying to do is really just do a new way of doing business. And it takes a lot more time. It's a lot harder. But in the end, the rewards are so much bigger and so much better. And I'm very thankful for uh, where I am today. And do you feel that even though this uh, business model may be harder, that in the long run, it's actually more sustainable for these business owners? Oh, absolutely. You know, a lot of these larger companies, they're expanding the way they're expanding, have taken in large investment dollars. They're not self-sustainable. They're not able to actually create wealth for the shareholders. Um, this model of business that we've been able to do we um, use very tight budgets. We pay off our investors and our shareholders have returns. Our shareholders are um, the partners, the employees from a therapeutic alternatives incubator program. And I feel that this model is very sustainable. And um, in the long run, I think I'm hoping that, you know, other, other people start uh, to catch on and start to um, enact heart center businesses. I just had an interview with Sister Kate from Sisters of the Valley. And yeah. she was also just what an incredible powerhouse of a woman. And she was talking about something very similar about, you know, if you're going to become a Sister of the Valley, it's about commerce. You need to be making money. And that one of the ways that we need to focus on elevating women in this industry is by commerce and helping them to make money and become self-sustainable. So I just, yeah. what I love about this industry is seeing how cannabis kind of gives birth to these incredible business models and ways that women can actually elevate each other. So you and I had an opportunity recently to be a part of a mediation together. And it's not something I had ever done with you. I, I, it was a brand new experience for me. And I was so impressed with your patience and with your sensitivity to the issues at hand and to the people 
who are involved. And you just created this incredible safe space where people felt like they could really express what was going on. And I'm curious to know how you developed this leadership style. So you, you're developing this business model that is focused on elevating women. And there are going to be issues inherent in that that we are actually seeing in our industry at large, where there's there's disagreements and there's kind of infighting and and it's it's inevitable. You know, we're in a very stressful industry. But I'm I'm curious how you've seen your way through all of this to become a leader who has such incredible sensitivity and compassion and able to lead people back into a place of harmony together. It is a real gift to be able to do that in a leader. Well, thank you. I've been managing people for, gosh, 12 to 15 years. And so it has taken time to learn those skills. Um, in managing people, my ultimate goal is to bring people together and so I've been a part of many uh, mediations. People have different communication styles. They have different languages of love. They have different goals, different missions. And they understand even the same sentence differently sometimes based right. upon the context and their perceptions. And so, so the, the goal of the communication and the mediation is to, to make sure that both sides are right. Both sides have legitimate concerns and both sides are wrong. Both sides have something that they need to, a lesson to learn in this situation. And that's um, one thing that I put in place because I wanted to work in a place where I could make mistakes. And I wanted to work in a place where people would tell me, uh, I have this saying, like, check yourself before you wreck yourself, you know, like. <laughs> You only check people if you care about them. If you don't care about someone, let them go wreck themselves. You know, who cares? But, but the thing is, is we are on a team. And women in the cannabis industry, we are on the same team. And so on this team, we are going to have uh, disagreements. But in order to provide a professional, compassionate, a leadership style, we have to work these things out and, um, you know, come to see a little bit of where the other person's coming from. And so um, I recently saw two really amazing women leaders in our community having a very public fight. And so I wanted to try to, you know, get together and just offer support to both of them because once again, they both have legitimate concerns and they both have lessons to learn. And I just wanted to help create a safe space to try to facilitate some of that um, on behalf of the industry, on behalf of the fact that they're both beautiful faces of the industry. What advice can you give women who may not have the opportunity to sit down and have an actual mediation you did say we are part of a team, and I completely agree with you on that. How can we learn to be better teammates to each other when we don't have a Kimberly to help us mediate it? Well, I think, so for me, I have some issues. Everybody has issues. So mm -hmm. I have an issue with someone right now, and I'm going to ask that person if we could have a mediator, someone who cares about both of us, who wants to see us work things out. Um, and, and that's what I plan to do. I plan to have a mediator because the problem is sometimes there's so much emotion involved that 
it's really hard when it's just the two people who are having a disagreement coming together. There's no neutral third party to say, this is what I hear you say. This is what I hear you say. Is this true? And um, to kind of decipher through the emotions to figure out what is the root of the problem and how can we make an agreement to move forward with something that is mutually beneficial. And so I would say, if you can, try to pull in somebody. Um, and I think a lot of the women leadership in our industry wants to help and would be honored to be a mediator, would be honored to help women work through their problems. And this is, an, you know, thousands of years ago when we were in tribes together, this is how it was done. And we've just become isolated in our society. And there's such a, you know, heavy burden or heavy idea of independence and how independence is strength. And wow. um, that's not always true. You know, actually community is strength and there's power in numbers. And if we come together and support each other, we're going to get a lot more done a lot faster. I had a really interesting conversation with a woman who studied anthropology, and we were talking about some of the divisions that we're witnessing right now in the industry among the women in the community. And she said that one of the defining things that led the community through slavery was solidarity. And that over and over again in history, when there have been huge movements that have changed the trajectory of a society, it's because of solidarity and unity. And I started looking yeah. at the industry thinking, okay, well, when it was the fight was for medical, when the fight was for adult use, we had one great unifier. We had one mission. But what is that mission now? What is the thing that ties us together as women in the cannabis community? Is there something or do we need to, as leaders, start trying to define that so that we can have something that is more important than our grievances and our upsets? that we can come together with this one mission in mind? I think we all have our individual missions, but together it makes um, one mission. And I think our mission as leaders of our industry is really to normalize cannabis use and to change the stereotypes. You know, that's why we speak up and we work so hard to be professional and to put a good face forward to show people that cannabis should be normalized. And I think that that's what we're all working towards. Um, yes, there are some people um, who are just in it for the money, but I kind of find those people to be typically more young men. Um, I feel like every woman I've talked to in this industry is like, I am here to normalize the industry. I am here to normalize cannabis so that cannabis can be used and accessible by everyone. And when they need it, whether it's for cancer or if they just had a hard day, or I call it mommy's little helper, um, <laughs> it is here for us and it is accessible for us. And I feel like that is the theme that I hear from all of the women. And um, that is kind of something that we're all pushing for. Maybe we need to make that more front and center in everything we do to kind of remind us over and over again, this is why we're here. And, you know, and I agree with you. I've met so many women in this industry who've given up 
you know, their career trajectory, they've sold their businesses, they've sold their house to just have a piece of an opportunity in cannabis because they're driven by the fact that it's helped them, it saved their children's lives, it's relieved their parents, it's, it has changed their lives so dramatically in a positive way that they become committed to making sure everyone has access to it. So I, I think you're right on that, and, and especially for the women in the industry. So changing the, the topic a little bit, I'm curious about how being a woman in this industry has been a benefit and presented challenges for you over the last 20 years you've been a part of it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it has been both, right? And so, for instance, you know, um, there was a large conference, the biggest conference that's out there. And when they when we first passed Prop 64 and regulations in California, I got to sit on the opening panel with assembly members and the heads of organizations because I was a woman who had been at the Capitol. And so I was, I was a token woman, right? So um, I was chosen just for the fact that I was a woman at the Capitol. And so <laughs> it was kind of like when I accepted it, I was kind of like, okay, this is uh, a negative and a positive all in one, right? So I think that it's provided me opportunities when I was the only woman in the room because people are realizing now that our voices are extremely important and whether or not they personally believe that they know that they need to incorporate us for in order for them to be perceived uh, you know, as politically correct or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. They're getting pushback from people saying, hey, how come there's no women on any of the panels at this conference, you know? And so I feel like it has helped me a little bit. I've been actually on a few panels of all men and I do feel like it was because I was a really kind of, I was getting up in there um, as a woman though. But I think if I was a man, I wouldn't be incorporated as much kind of blend into the sea <laughs> been in this industry. So I think it has provided me some opportunities just in that. But it's also very hindering. In the olden days, it was hindering because as a buyer at dispensaries, all the growers were like, hey, let me talk to that guy with dreads. He knows more about this than you do. And I'm like, I taught him how to grow. Okay, <laughs> He knows less about this than I do. And this is what I'm saying. And this is the truth. And so that has transcended to the new problem. And the new problem is getting investment. And so Kamiya is an all-woman-owned equity cannabis manufacturing company that I am a part of and helped found. And we are having the hardest time getting large investment. And a very small percentage, 8% of venture capital in this country goes to women, 8%. And 2% goes to women of color. There is so little money out there for women-owned companies. And it has been extremely difficult because we don't speak the same language as these men. And they don't, I feel, they don't see themselves in us. And so we we just haven't been able to get them to understand that we can do a great job, if not a better job, 
than the people that they're actually giving the money to. And so it's, it's been, it's been difficult. I think that uh, we would had a lot money a long time ago if I was a guy, (laughs) as we have seen where the money has went in the last two years of investment in the cannabis industry. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that investment has blown up. And actually, you know, we've, we've had some very well-funded companies that are making a mockery of everything that the rest of us are trying to turn cannabis into. So I, I, I wish you and the ladies at Kimia the best. I, you know, I've watched the three of you for the last few years and there is not a harder group of women, which is a, a big statement to make, but the three of you are just continually blow my mind on how hard you work and the success that you've achieved. And it's just mind blowing that someone hasn't seen that and, and fully funded you. So I I really wish you the best of luck with that. Thank you. So you're a very high profile woman in the industry, which again, I just don't understand why you're not getting funded. Anyway, so you, you, you have access to a lot of people. You, you get to see behind the scenes on things that most of us will never have access to. Knowing all of this, what are you really excited about for the industry? And what are you nervous and, and trepidatious about? Well, I think that those, for me, are the same answer. So the next big thing, I feel like the last big thing that happened to our industry was hemp. And Mm -hmm. so, and then before that, the next big thing that happened to our industry was adult use in California. And so I think the next big thing that terrifies me and excites me at the same time is federal legalization. Mm -hmm. And that can come in many different forms. And so that terrifies me. How is it going to come to us? What is the form that's going to come to us? And what is going to be the aftermath of our industry here in California? Um, It also excites me because, you know, anybody in the U.S., hopefully, if it's done right, will be able to use cannabis without fear. And the stigmas associated with using cannabis will diminish over time. It will also open up interstate commerce, which will help California quite a bit because we have beautifully grown herb here in California and we have, uh, we have the potential to grow a lot of it. And we are an agricultural state. And so I think that there's a lot of potential there, but, but it is scary. The unknown is scary, but I think it's coming. It's coming. The, the date that it is coming is getting closer and closer every day. And, and so that's kind of just like looming out there in the future. I spoke with Shabnam Malik of Brandon Branch. She is an attorney. And she is the, one of the founders of the national cannabis bar association. So she's got, you know, she's kind of obsessed with this from a legal perspective. And she was telling me that, uh, decriminalization, which is, you know, potentially the route that we will go as opposed to legalization, it will become decriminalized, which means it will be removed from schedule one is amazing. And I think to your point, it will immediately destigmatize in a huge way cannabis which is something we've been working for for a very long time. But at the same time, if it's just deregulated or, or de, um, declassified, we still don't have regulation. So we're moving into a world where it's going to be kind of the wild, wild west. And we've already seen, you mentioned hemp, you know, we've seen this with CBD. There's so much gray area. Is it Can we eat it? Can we ingest it? How do you extract it? There's just so much complication. 
And then if we have that experience with THC, I mean, what are some of the things that really kind of in that bucket concern you the most? I do think that it possibly will be descheduled, hopefully descheduled, not just moved on the schedule. So best case scenario, it's descheduled first. Then second, shortly after, I do expect we will see some regulations and um, license fees and taxes that come with that. Now, at this time, we're also going to see the large companies who have been having meetings for the last few years. I know people have sat in on some of these meetings um, who are preparing for their part in cannabis. Large companies, large brands, large corporations, national, international companies. And so it will be it will be interesting to see if our industry, if anyone in our industry can survive as we are. Most likely we're going to have to adapt as we had to adapt with Prop 64. And adaptation is extremely stressful mm. and not everyone survives that change. It's going to be pretty drastic, I think. Um, at least we have gone through it on a state level. So we know what comes with regulation, taxation, license fees. And I think we're going to have to add all that on to another level. Now, the good thing that comes with federal legalization and regulation is the removing the 280E tax implications, mm. which cost us hundreds of thousands, some companies millions of dollars a year to pay tax on money that they don't have. And so, so that's a positive that will help, I think, balance out the additional cost of federal taxes and federal license fees and the cost um, of regulations. I think because we were regulated, at least we'll be a step ahead here in California compared to the rest of the nation who has not had to enact regulation so far. Okay, so I wanna pose the same question to you, but I want to know about what concerns you about the future of women in the industry and what excites you about the opportunities for women in the industry? Well, I think that we are going through a major change when it comes to women in business right now. Um, you know, over the last hundred years, women have continued to gain rights and continued to gain legitimacy. We have seen that women businesses, women owned and women run businesses actually outperform men run businesses and men own businesses. And so we have some statistics to show because we have been allowed to go to college and we have excelled and we have been allowed to get loans to start our companies and we have excelled. And so I think that at this point, people are taking notice of this. And um, I think that we're really going to see kind of, um, I think they call it a boon in women in business um, as as time goes by. I think that we're, we're, we're just about there where we're really going to start to um, reap some of the rewards of all this hard work. 
Jennifer Wetzel of Lady Brain, Lady Jane Branding is she's conducting a survey of women in cannabis, and I asked her for a couple of juicy details to be able to share on some of my panels. And one of the details was that of I think it was about fifteen hundred women that have so far answered the survey, forty eight percent are founders and owners. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was a really interesting statistic that so many of the women that are coming in, almost 50% of the women who are choosing this as a, as a a career now are becoming owners and founders. I think that's really impressive. And you are part of helping to make that happen. Okay. So my last question for you today is for advice. What advice do you have for women who are interested in becoming a cannabis license holder? What should they be prepared for? What do they need to understand and how can you help them emotionally face what it is that the reality of becoming a license holder? Good question. (laughs) (laughs) The first few years, just like starting any other company, it's going to be extremely difficult and you have to be prepared to go through great sacrifice and great struggle in order to someday be successful. The first year mark for all my partners when they've started their dispensaries or their companies is so difficult that everybody pretty much has a mental breakdown. It's so hard (laughs) the first year where you have been working every day and you barely have enough, enough money to pay your bills and it's just struggle after struggle after struggle. And, and it's really, really hard. So I think anybody can do anything. If there's a will, there's a way. If you think you can, you can't. If you think you can't, you can't. And so the number one success indicator that I have seen in the companies that I've been involved with is the leader has to believe in the company. The leader has to believe in the company. If they are negative and they don't believe that the company is going to be successful, their employees won't believe that. Their Mm. employees will transfer that energy to the members to the people they're selling to, they will not come in. Um, So it's kind of like fake it till you make it, I think. Like you have to really believe, even if everything around you is crumbling and saying you're not going to be successful, you have to believe that you're going to be successful. You have to project success. You have to tell your team that you're going to be successful. And you really have to believe in in the light at the end of the tunnel. It's up to you and it's only up to you. Nobody can do it for you. That is such great advice. Thank you. And I believe when you say that, that you have lived through that yourself. And that is coming from (laughs) Thank you so much, Kimberly. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for taking us on your journey and giving us such incredible advice. It was such an honor for me to get to, to interview you today. Thank you. Thank you. It was an honor for to be here with you. (laughs) Thank you for tuning in, ladies. If you haven't yet joined the Women Empowered in Cannabis community, go to our website, womenempoweredincannabis.com, and find your group. We've got our main group, the supply chain group, CBD and hemp, and the most recently added group, Women of Color. WEIC is a community that provides resources, connections, events, and content to women working in cannabis in the U.S., Canada, and around the world where there's an interest in cannabis legalization. We welcome women who are currently working in cannabis or curious about taking the leap into the industry. Join us next week for another conversation with women leading in cannabis.
Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.